0: Mm-mm hmm 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 Episode 18 of Grace Touch. This will be the last episode of the marriage series and we're focusing on intercultural marriages which I believe to be a very relevant topic for our times. So what can the Bible teach us about intercultural marriage? We know that the Old Testament contains quite a few passages that clearly show that God warned his children not to take wives from the surrounding nations. But it was always for spiritual reasons to avoid corrupting God's people with foreign pagan religious beliefs and practices. So let's look at a few examples from the word of God that illustrate this very relevant topic and look at some heroes of the faith who married foreign wives. This is Coco, your host as usual. I'm very pleased to speak to you today. Let's start by looking at the word of God. So if we look at Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 3 and 4 the Bible says in the Berean Study Bible version do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons because they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Here uh, the Bible is referring to foreign wives. Okay. And there are so many other uh, passages that mention that how it was a trap for particularly for the men of Israel when they took wives amongst the daughters of the peoples that surrounded them because then they often turned away from God or started mixing their fire, so started worshipping the one true God and also uh, the pagan godlings of the nations. But the Bible also says, if we now turn to the New Testament, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So this is really, it's really interesting because what the new covenant brought to us in a very specific way is the idea that as long as we believe in Christ, we are one and the same we are all made new creations through christ so is this in contradiction with the old testament absolutely not because if we look back at the old testament for example numbers chapter 9 verse 14 this is about the passover uh, the people of israel are receiving the rules for the passover again the berian study bible puts it this way numbers 9 14. if a foreigner dwelling among you wants to observe the passover to the lord He is to do so according to the Passover statute and its ordinances. You are to apply the same statutes to both the foreigner and the native of the land. So we see clearly here that a foreigner residing amongst the people of Israel who decides to follow God's rules, God's laws, this was Old Testament times, so it was about ordinances and laws, etc. The law applied to everyone, whether native or foreigner. It is clear even from the Old Testament that God was interested in the hearts of people as opposed to their origin or the color of their skin. And this is consistent as well with the passage in um, Revelation that says that uh, the Lord will have in the end all nations worshiping him together. Let me see if I can find this passage quickly. So that I will read it because there is always so much power in reading the word of the Lord. Uh, It just brings things into perspective and it is the truth. It is a double-edged sword and hearing it read or listening to it or reading it always brings the truth to life, to our lives. So let's see if I can find it. Yes, Revelation seven nine. Uh, Revelation chapter seven, verse nine. I'll read it in many versions. The Berean Study Bible says After this I looked, and I saw a multitude too large to count, from every nation and tribe and people and tongue standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands the niv says after this i looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation tribe people and language standing before the throne and before the lamb they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands New Living Translation says, After this I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands, etc., etc. Okay? So we can continue uh, and read all the other versions, but whatever version we look at, it seems that our God sees humanity as one, and He's interested in our hearts. Regardless of our background, regardless of the the, the color of our skin, um, as long as we turn to Him wholeheartedly, we become His children. He makes us His people. He becomes our God and our Father. So this uh, episode focuses on marriage, but just as a very, very important side comment, we need to revisit our ideas about other nations on the basis of the Word of God. If we carry prejudice and bias or some form of racism, yes, I said it, uh, any roots of discrimination that we may have inherited uh, from the people we grew up with or the the, the things that were said in our circles or that are said even in our professional circles. As Christians, we need to re-examine our hearts and bring our hearts to God. He is the one who can heal the condition of our heart. In the four chambers of our heart, whatever is hidden in there, He is the one that will bring to light, reveal the state of our heart and bring healing to us. Now, reverting back to our topic of intercultural marriage. So there were quite a few intercultural marriages in uh, the Bible. There are some very famous couples uh, in the Bible that illustrate intercultural marriages. Let's uh, see, for example, um, let's look at a few examples, okay? So where does this interculturality of earth originate? I think I just created a word. (laughs) I am a creative. Well, when God scattered the people of the earth, all over the face of the earth because he mixed the languages. I'm talking about the incident that occurred at the Tower of Babel. As the year passed, after that scattering event, these people started developing uh, new traditions, uh, different dialects and cultural habits as they migrated to different areas. And that's when the idea of being foreign emerged. Okay? So I'm referring to the incident uh, relayed in Genesis 11, 1 to 9, if you've forgotten it, please go and read it, because it starts, Genesis 11, verse 1, the NIV version starts, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. Okay? But when God scattered them, by the time you get to verses 8, uh, sorry, verse 6 to 9, let me read that, so Genesis 11, verse 6 to 9, The Lord said, originated. Human history has shown us how people have made money and uh, gained um, uh, votes and uh, manipulated this idea of foreignness, of race, which is a a fallacy because race is, we are all, we all belong to the same race. We are all human. The only race is the human race. So people have started referring, I started referring a long time ago to skin color as race. You know, and uh, in many nations, interracial marriages were criminalized. Uh, there are some uh, tribalistic considerations that mean whole families will come against fiancés who want to get married because they come from different regions, etc., etc. Unfortunately, I think we are all familiar with these things. So, what does it look like in the Bible? Let's look at uh, start with Moses, for example. So, if we look at Moses' story, Moses and Zipporah. That's in Numbers, Numbers 12. So let me go to Numbers 12 and see a bit of that story again. For all these passages, if you want to read the whole story, that's really a good idea because you get everything in context. This is when Miriam and Aaron started criticizing Moses because he married a Cushite woman. So Cush is thought to be a place where people... Were black. It was located in what we now call Ethiopia or maybe uh, Sudan or that region. So this means that Tipporah, Moses' wife, the Kushite woman, was most likely black. As far as we know from that Bible passage, God never told Moses not to marry Tipporah. Uh, the, the fact that she was black didn't, didn't seem to be a problem to God. And uh, moreover, she was the daughter of a priest. But somehow Miriam and Aaron grew jealous. Um, not only because Moses had married a woman who was not an Israelite, but I think mainly, if we uh, uh, read the Bible passage, the whole story, because God chose Moses to use as his mouthpiece when speaking to the people. And it is my interpretation and that of many people, uh, other commentators um, on Christian um, fora on the internet, that they use this issue of uh, um, him marrying a Kushite woman to try to stir up the Israelites, to question his authority and mutiny, to bring them to mutiny against his leadership. It's always the same story, isn't it? Uh, Envy, jealousy, etc. And all sorts of evils arise from that. And uh, so let's read that little bit in Numbers 12.1. It says, Then Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses because of the Kushite woman he had married, for he had taken a Kushite Wife, So that's the Berean Study Bible. Okay, so how does God respond to that? How does God respond to that? God is not too pleased with Miriam and Aaron's sinful, racial and cultural prejudice as they try to use that to undermine Moses' leadership. If we look at Numbers 12, fast forward to verses 9 and 10, the NIV says, The anger of the Lord burned against them and he left them. When the cloud lifted from above the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous. It became as white as snow. Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had a defiling skin disease. Ouch. That is pretty harsh. Harsh. It is very, very harsh. It shows that Miriam brought um, a curse against herself by speaking in this way. Rabbinic uh, analyses and literature indicate Uh, that Tipporah saved Moses twice. So, for example, um, apparently, when Moses showed up in Midian, uh, which is the origin that those texts attribute to Tipporah, he admitted to Jethro that he was fleeing from Pharaoh, you know, when he had killed an Egyptian, and Jethro is thought to have thrown him in a pit and left him there to die of starvation. But then Sipporah had compassion on Moses and brought him bread and water. And after 10 years, she finally told her father uh, that this Hebrew who had been jailed in the pit for the past 10 years, nobody has come around looking for him, it's no longer dangerous to have him in our home, etc., etc. And she told her dad, let us send for him and see if he's alive or dead. And Jethro was not aware that his daughter was showing kindness to Moses all these years, so he said, is it possible for a man to be locked up for 10 years and survive without food? And his daughter is is thought to have replied, Father, haven't you heard that the God of the Hebrews is great and awesome and does miracles for them all the time? He saved Abraham from the fire, Isaac from the sword, and Jacob from the angel who fought him. And how about this very Moses who was saved from the Nile and from the sword of Pharaoh? I'm sure that God could have saved him now as well. And in this story, which I've read on Shabad.org, they went to the pit, they found Moses alive, uh, standing and praying to the God of his fathers. He was taken out, cleaned up, etc., etc. And it was then that Moses asked for Zipporah's hand in marriage. Okay? So that's really interesting. And it's thought that she developed feelings for him over the years as she took care of him. Uh, the Bible does relay another story, which is uh, when Zipporah saved Moses' life from God's anger, uh, apparently he had delayed the circumcision of their newborn son, and she knew it somehow. And with a quick, her quick thinking mind, uh, she saved her husband's life by giving the son a quick circumcision with a sharp stone. She severed the son's foreskin, says the Bible, and cast it to the feet of Moses. So, it looks like Tipporah, however foreign she may have been, turned out to be a really good wife to Moses. So. It seems that it is a non issue in God's eyes. Okay. Uh, let's continue. Let's look at Samson and Delilah. Now, Samson and Delilah's story is completely different. As much as uh, what we just read and discussed about Zipporah uh, is a very positive story, we have quite the opposite here. But let's start by reading the Relevant passage which is in Judges chapter 14 verses 2 to 3. Let's look at the source of this love story or whatever you want to call it between Samson and Delilah. Judges 14, 2 to 3. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She's the right one for me. So that's the NIV version. So that raises immediate red flags. Samson knew nothing about Delilah. He saw that she was beautiful, that she was a Philistine woman. Uh, By the way, the Philistines were the Jews. Enemies, They worshipped idols and he decided to marry her. Uh, He'd never even consulted God it seems when he was making this choice. And lo and behold he married her and she betrayed him again and again and again until she led him to his destruction. So the whole story was really bloodied. Um, It's a story of violence, of betrayal, of retaliation. Uh, the Philistines trying to coerce Delilah into getting Samson to reveal the source of his strength till the, till the day he finally gave in and revealed the truth to his wife and his, head, his hair was cut. And that is what led to the Philistines finally capturing Samson, gouging out his eyes and killing him. Okay, So here we see that Samson's downfall was caused by his weakness for women who were pretty regardless of their background. Demonstrating to us why as Christians we shouldn't marry people who do not share the same faith or spiritual values as us. We should come to God for, uh, uh, to ask him to give us his infinite wisdom about our decisions. It has nothing to do with the cultural differences between Samson and Delilah. Let's move on to another story, which is David and Bathsheba. Now, David and Bathsheba, that's a very, very interesting one. So, how did David's love affair with Bathsheba start? It didn't start uh, in a very godly way, shall we say. Here, Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of David's mighty men. He had a band of very loyal warriors, you know. Even though the Hittites were a pagan tribe linked to the Canaanites, The Bible highlights how honorable this Gentile and formerly pagan man named Uriah was, who he obviously had converted to the Jewish faith. He was a man of great honor. In contrast with David, who was a Jewish king and who actually just took his wife from him, sending him to his death. Let's read the story in 2 Samuel. Let me try a different version. Uh, Let's try the New Living Version. New Living Translation. So this is the story of David and Bathsheba. Okay? 2 Samuel 11. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked over, out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, go on home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, What's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah replied, The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents. And Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home and to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, Station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. Then Joab sent a battle report to David. He told his messenger, Report all the news of the battle to the king. But he might get angry and ask, Why did the troops go so close to the city? Didn't they know there would be shooting from the walls? Wasn't Abimelech, son of Gideon, killed at Tebez by a woman who threw a millstone down on him from the wall? Why would you get so close to the wall? Then tell him, Uriah the Hittite was killed too. So the messenger went to Jerusalem and gave a complete report to David. The enemy came out against us in the open fields, he said. And as we chased them back to the city gate, the archers on the wall shot arrows at us. Some of the king's men were killed, including Uriah the Hittite. Well, tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to his to a son. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. What a story. So I decided to read the whole story to you because I think it's a magnificent story. Especially not only in the way God dealt with David's uh, uh disobedience, but in the way he then subsequently redeemed him and redeemed this story. A few things. Reading this story, a few in, in very interesting uh Details emerge. This is a time when the kings are supposed to be at war. They're supposed to be fighting with their men. David decides to stay behind in Jerusalem. He's having naps, etc. And in his idleness, the enemy makes him a different proposition. Instead of being at war defending his people, the enemy proposes that he, his eyes dwell a little bit too long on a woman of unusual beauty. You know the story, you heard it. He summons her, uh, gets her brought to him, sleeps with her. And then it's very interesting. David finds himself in a position that many of us human beings have found ourselves. I'm really, really sure about this. He is trying to cover his sin. He's trying to get Uriah drunk to get him to sleep with his wife so that he can pass this child, this pregnancy as being the fruit of Uriah And Bathsheba, having had a a, a sexual relationship, he's trying to hide what he did, but that doesn't work. And eventually he's led to cause Uriah's death. We don't really hear much in the Bible uh, story about what Bathsheba thinks about this whole story. But in what we know about the relationships between men and women at the time, particularly between kings... and and ordinary people was that when a king demanded you be brought to him, you didn't really have a choice. Who knows? Was it rape? Did Bathsheba really want to be with David? The story doesn't make that clear. All we know is that David brings her to his palace. She becomes one of his wives. She gives birth to a son. And we know, uh, if you continue to read the story, you'll see that um, a prophet comes and talks to uh, David about what he did. And his son dies. But God will redeem this story by giving them another child who is none other than the magnificent Solomon, who would end up building the temple, etc. And who uh, is an ancestor, direct ancestor to Jesus. So here again we see that the problem isn't um, the origin of uh, uh, Bathsheba, even though she was most probably a Hittite. What happens is that God turns around this story that could have ended in a really bad way and basically gives them a son, as I've mentioned, who is part of the lineage of Jesus the Messiah. Let's look at another interracial couple in the Bible King Xerxes also called Ahasuerus and Esther we know the story uh, how Esther saved uh, the Jewish people in exile in Babylon with the help and support of her cousin Mordecai it's in Esther four thirteen to 14 so Esther ended up being married to this very powerful king to save her people And uh, even though he was very clearly a pagan king, she knew, she had the wisdom to use her husband's influence, the king's influence. And in return, he honored her and her people. And she saved uh, the Jewish people in exile from total destruction. Let's just read a little extract of that story, but I really encourage you to go and read the story of Esther. It's a beautiful story. So I'm reading Esther chapter 4 verses 13 to 14. Uh, it's when Mordecai speaks to Esther, his niece, and says, or his cousin, and says, verse 13 to 14, he sent back this answer, Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish And who knows, but that you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. So this is an intercultural marriage that God actually uses to save the people of Israel from certain destruction. I would like to finish with two intercultural marriages, Boaz and Ruth. This is again a very powerful story. Again, the messianic lineage. Okay. So Ruth was a Moabite, she was married to Malon, he died, Uh, his brother died, she remained loyal to her Israelite mother-in-law Naomi who had also been recently widowed and decided to adopt Israel and their beliefs as hers. So she traveled back with her mother in law after her husband died to Naomi's hometown of Bethlehem in the land of Judah, which incidentally is a very prophetic location, okay, which is where Jesus was born. Just to put this into context, the Moabites were often in conflict with Israel. People were certainly surprised to see Ruth return, enter the land of Judah with Naomi, her foreign daughter in law. We know from the story that Ruth happened to glean in the field owned by a wealthy and very kind man named Boaz who noticed that he was a foreign, she was a foreigner and according to uh, laws that were given to Israel in the Old Testament about kindness to foreigners, he offer, offered her protection and food. Then as he watched her glean day by day, he recognized her noble character and uh, her mother-in-law ended up advising her to go and see Boaz so that he would redeem her. She did so. He married her, and they ended up having a son named Obed, the father of Jesse, who became the father of King David, in the lineage of Christ. This is an absolutely beautiful story. Uh, let's read a bit of it. So, Ruth one sixteen. this is when Ruth pledges allegiance to her mother-in-law. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. So this is a foreign woman who decides to become Jewish, who adopts the religion and the practices of the Jews. So here again, this is a condition of the heart as I like to call it. It has nothing to do with her origin. If we look at Ruth 3, nine, this is when, following her mother-in-law's advice, Ruth goes to Boaz and says, Redeem me. She comes to see him on the threshing floor and he says, Who are you? He asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. This beautiful verse also points to the covering that Uh, according to God's um, organization, God's order, the covering that husbands are supposed to provide over their wives. Ruth's story is absolutely touching, magnificent, beautiful. Please read the whole book of Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. In in Ruth's language, we even see how she has so adopted this family that she calls it her family. And if we go again, to Ruth chapter 4, but this time verse 17. We will see how the story ends, as I've mentioned, but I would like to just quickly read the passage to you. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Uh, Because her mother-in-law had lost her children, not only did Ruth have a a son, but she also gave her son. To her mother in law. So, this is again a beautiful demonstration that the origin of this woman had no bearing on the success of this marriage. Undoubtedly, this will have been an absolutely beautiful, peaceful, happy marriage. I would like to end with the story of Joseph and Asenath. We do not know much about Asenath, as is often the case in the Bible. Women uh, are very often silent. There are a few examples, quite quite a few actually, of women whose story we know in greater detail, but many women in the Bible are just mentioned in passing. So we don't know much about this relationship. All we know is that Joseph, son of Jacob, had gained favor with Pharaoh. Uh, you can read the whole story in the Bible. And as a result, J- Joseph was given Asenath, the daughter of an Egyptian priest, as a wife. So that is really interesting because Egyptian priests will have been dealing with uh, ungodly beliefs, demonic beliefs. Egypt had a great many gods, or as I like to call them, godlings. It was a a nation of magic and sorcery and uh, dark arts, etc., etc. So him being given the daughter of a priest as a wife could... Uh, be alarming we can look at that and think oh my what is this woman going to to teach uh, their children is she going to cause the downfall of Joseph's family it doesn't seem that she does it doesn't seem that she does let us read uh, the the verse that uh, describes who she was and how Joseph came to marry her Genesis 41 verse 45 Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zaphrenath paneah and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. So he is married to Asenath. She, gives, she bears two children to Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim. Okay, Joseph, we know, was a very, very intelligent man, he had great wisdom, he gained great favor even with foreign kings. We don't really know how, but he managed to sort of find a balance between his own faith and values and those of his wife. Anyway, uh, they have two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. So let's read that passage again really quickly and then draw a conclusion from all that has been discussed. In this episode Genesis 46 verse 20 in Egypt Manasseh and Ephraim were born to Joseph by Asenath daughter of Potipharah priest of On these priests of On are thought to have belonged to the Sun and oh, that's really interesting they so they were a Sun worshippers because On is another name for Heliopolis which was the religious center of Ra the Egyptian god that represented the sun, okay? So Asenath was raised to respect uh, this uh, divinity, okay? Um, So, and even even though Joseph was renamed Zaphon at he did not capitulate, he did not adopt their ways, you know? For example, we know that when Pharaoh would have this dream that would keep him up at night, that would get him really worried, sick, Joseph would bring the interpretation of the dream to Pharaoh in Genesis 41, 16, and he would put God first. He would say, it is not I. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And again, in Genesis 41, 25, Joseph would say, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. So even though Joseph married his wife, he... It's very, very clear that he belongs to God, that he believes the God of Israel. Okay. Even the names given to the children, Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh means God has made me forget all my hardship and all of my father's house. He's referring to uh, the ill treatment that was inflicted on him through the evil uh, choices of his brothers against him. And Ephraim, God has made me fruitful in the land of my misfortunes. So, what can we conclude from these biblical examples? That God created all ethnic groups from one human ancestor. This is confirmed in the Old Testament. It is confirmed in the New Testament. If we look at Acts chapter 17, verse 26, the Bible is very, very clear about that. The NIV says, From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole. Earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Okay, let me read it in another version so maybe we'll understand it a bit better. The New Living Translation says, Acts 17:26, again, from one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. So the fact that the, the earth, the world, is multicultural is good. It's not a bad thing. It's well within God's design. So we don't need to panic about it. F- further back in Genesis one twenty seven, where we see a confirmation that all members of every ethnic group, all human beings, are made in the image of God. In case... Some people have doubts about that. Genesis 127 NIV says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female, he created them. So, And we all come from this source, this creation. We are all created in the image of God. So we can safely conclude that the grounds, the Bible supports intercultural marriage just as long as the person we choose to be our spouse shares our love for and fear of the one true God. Our dignity and value as human beings comes from our filiation with God, from the fact that He is our Father and we are made in His image. Okay? And we know Jesus' mandate, the go command it makes it clear to us that it is God's purpose and command that we make disciples for Jesus Christ from every ethnic group in the world without distinction. Let's look at the Bible verses, the Bible verse, sorry, that spells this out. Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 to 20 says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Let me read that again. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. God is interested in every human being, regardless of their background, skin color, etc., etc., Romans 12, 4-5 again emphasizes this brotherhood, kinship, sisterhood that is linked to our faith in God. It is Christ who unites us. The only form of intermarriage that the Bible is clearly against is intermarriage between believers and unbelievers, not between people from different ethnic groups. So let us all come together united in our love for Christ. And examine our hearts, or rather, invite Holy Spirit to examine our hearts. To root out anything that comes against God's plan. To unite all of humanity in their love for Christ. Okay? So, uh, thank you for listening. I hope and pray that this episode has blessed you. And uh, please, as you always, I encourage you to send comments. questions. Um, This is all done for our mutual edification. God bless you till next week. Goodbye. This was Coco, episode 18 of Grace Touch, the last of the marriage series.